0: We can talk about a lot of different scenarios. I think the most likely right now is kind of looking at this from the perspective of we have these sneak previews for three days leading into a Thursday nationwide release that will still be missing several major markets. So you really could not have a more non-traditional opening for a major film in the United States.
1: This is the Box Office Podcast. My name is Russ Fisher. I'm the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content to movie theaters. And with me, as always, are Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, and Rebecca Polly, the deputy editor of Box Office Pro. Great to talk to both of you again.
2: And coming to you live on a Thursday now. This is exciting. That's right. On like ten. This is our Thursday. first
1: Thursday episode. Yeah. <laughs> on, on the long-awaited tenant U.S. opening Thursday. As we mentioned uh, last week, yeah, you know, we're moving our schedule to Thursdays rather than Mondays. And a bug part of that is because uh, movie theaters in the U.S. are open again in many states. And so... Uh, we will have weekend box office forecasting, courtesy of Sean Robbins. He'll be on towards the end of this episode. And that means that we also have news to talk about. Uh, So we're going to jump right in with a little rundown of what happened this past weekend, which begins, of course, with a tenant opening internationally. And it opened to 53 million, which considering that we're not at 100% uh, seems pretty good.
2: Yeah, yeah. Really positive news coming out from uh, from overseas, uh, looking at an actual gross of 53.6, uh, to be specific here from Warner Brothers. Top markets for Tenet, uh, UK leading the way, its home market with uh, $7 million in its opening weekend, uh, followed by France with $6.8 million. In third place, we've got South Korea with 5.1 million, and then Germany with uh, 4.5 million for that opening share. In a context of uh, two things to keep in mind, of course, right? One, pent-up demand for new titles like this one, of course, is going to bring uh, more people out than usual. But... A global pandemic (laughs) and restrictions to capacity for cinemas is probably going to hold some audiences back. So as we've been saying for a number of weeks, it's a promising start, but uh, this is far from the usual opening day weekend numbers that we've come to expect.
1: You know, I think you're leaving something out. There's an important third factor, which is that international movie star Tom Cruise posted a video of himself at the Tenant UK premiere. And I mean, maybe it's just me, but I want to say that drove a couple of million dollars worth of box office easily.
2: I I love me, my Tom Cruise. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a big Tom Cruise fan to to a certain extent. I shouldn't even say that. Um, I've seen like maybe eight of his movies. And I think... (laughs) H. Yeah, know. But <laughs> Eyes Wide Shut's great. I like Eyes Wide Shut. Does that count? Does that is that even a Tom Cruise movie or is that with like? Magnolia I, I would consider corner? that
3: a Tom Cruise movie. I, uh, That's I, a Kubrick he's a, movie. He's a very he was a very charismatic man. I, I, I like the display of uh, cross studio solidarity. Given his his I mean the, I, I guess the most prominent movie he has uh, coming out is Top Gun: Maverick, which is a Paramount film obviously. And he's
1: working on Mission Impossible, which is also a Paramount mm-hmm. movie. And I think in fact, at that video, he was at the premiere seated next to Christopher Macquarie, who they've partnered on many movies together now, including the last couple and the next couple Mission Impossible movies.
3: It was a good video to see it. And we've seen a bit of that um, over in the French market with with French you know, prominent directors and stars coming out in, in support of the theaters, but we haven't seen so much uh, on the American side.
2: It's an important thing to think about as we start planning our own domestic big reopening here with Tenet coming to the domestic market uh, this weekend. And of course, in anticipation of that, we have uh, big news coming from the state of California. Rebecca, uh, there's word of updates in terms of when movie theaters in the state can reopen.
3: Yeah, it it is news. Um, It's yet to be seen uh, how big the news is in practical terms. Um, So basically what happened is that uh, California's governor released his uh, blueprint for a safer economy plan, which has a whole bunch of uh, details on a whole bunch of different industries. But as it relates to movie theaters, long and the short of it is that some counties technically as of Monday, uh, the 31st, can open movie theaters at 25% capacity. Uh, The basic idea is that every county in California has been organized into four tiers. Most of them are in the worst tier. That includes Los Angeles County. Uh, There are some counties, including San Diego County, San Francisco County, that have have gone down in terms of cases, in terms of positivity rates uh, of COVID testing. So, yeah, Theaters, as far as you know, the information that we've been able to see, have not actually started reopening in, in California yet, which makes sense because if any had opened on August 31st, they would have had, I think, three days notice to pull it off. So, so not really surprised that, that no one jumped on that. Um, but there is a, a corridor for reopening. There's a plan for reopening. There are there are benchmarks that counties have to hit, and and there are benchmarks that they have to follow in terms of a, a percentage of capacity that they're allowed to have once they reopen. The real question now is, you know, okay, the the major uh, exhibitors who operate in California, your your AMC, your Regal, your Cinemark, are they going to open, or are are they going to take it in a county by county basis? Are they going to wait until they can open? in most of California at the same time, are they maybe going to wait for Los Angeles or Los Angeles County? That's something that that we're going to have to wait and see. You know, a lot of the counties that um, technically can have, have movie theaters open are in Northern California. So I would be interested to see if we start seeing showtimes there. But, yeah, I mean, we saw something similar in like all the way back in June where there was an announcement that, oh, California theaters in theory can open as soon as I think it was June 12th at the time. Obviously, that that didn't really happen. You know, there's there's sensitivity to it, certainly in terms of you you don't want to reopen and then have to reclose. You, you don't maybe necessarily want to take it piecemeal county by county You would want to have a more unified campaign, a more unified effort, especially in a market uh, so large and so important to the industry as as California. But, yeah, we'll see. Certainly things have more momentum now than they did in June uh, with Tenet coming out over Labor Day weekend, with other films already uh, coming to theaters and with hundreds of theaters in the United States outside of California, already having having opened their doors. So um, yeah, nothing, nothing similar for New York yet. We're waiting on that one.
2: We're still waiting on that one. I know that uh, our industry colleague, Joe Masher, uh, who is on the board of the NATO uh, group here in New York, has been actively campaigning to to get a little bit more clarity. But as it stands, as Rebecca notes, we've got about 62% more or less of the domestic market in terms of grossing potential available to distributors. That in itself is going to have a lot to say in terms of what these opening weekend grosses and these weekly uh, box office figures are going to come in at. Beyond that 62% that's open, we also have to factor in what's in the market, what isn't in the market yet, and are enough people ready to come back right at the beginning. Uh, It's a big concern, but I think uh, a lot of distributors and exhibitors are keenly aware of it, right? I think a lot of the reopening campaign hasn't really been focused on, hey, let's come back as soon as possible. It's really been a, when you're comfortable to come back, Here's how we're going to be waiting for you. So it's going to be interesting to to track that. I know uh, after speaking with Kathleen Taft, the, the president of distribution over at Disney over the weekend, and Disney is still waiting to see just what these major circuit reopening plans are going to be In the state of california and really take it day by day so it's it's not a guarantee that we'll see a huge location count increase for a title like new mutants in its second weekend of course new mutants being the first wide release of a major studio here domestically opening to seven million dollars over the weekend and to be frank, guys, that's uh, more or less square with our expectations for the title. We expected the title to open with $7.5 ahead of release. It uh, it really is within that range. To give you some context, before the pandemic, we were looking uh, at around a $17 million opening weekend. That means everything uh, said and done, uh, going down to $7 million, looking at that grossing potential, looking at the... Audiences that are comfortable coming back, it really is performing uh, among expectations. And those expectations are, of course, very much recalibrated in this post pandemic context.
3: And as we've discussed before, it's, it's definitely uh, not all about the opening weekend right now. I mean, we have films coming out in the coming months, but certainly in terms of numbers, nowhere close to the amount that we, we would have seen. So there's a definite potential. I mean, maybe people just aren't comfortable going opening week. Maybe people just think, oh, it's going to be too busy. And then two, three, four, five weeks, you know, into the future, people will get more comfortable with the idea of, of uh, going back to the theater. And in theaters with, you know, multiplexes with 10, 11, 12 screens, New Mutants will still be there because there's not going to be much else to program. Even even over the next month or two,
1: I can't really see this happening. But I'm wondering if either of you could, uh, if either of you think that we might see a movie actually have a second or third weekend that's better than its opening weekend sometime in the next month or two.
2: It's all down to location counts. Obviously, you know, uh, it's it's a little bit like. Um, you know, any retail thing, the more shelves you can have the product in, the easier it is to to get that happening. Uh, we're all just learning on a week by week basis to see how this, how this happens. I think a title like the new mutants, which let's face it, isn't maybe a a premium Disney title. I think is fair to say it's a title that, that, came right, from a, from right, an acquisition yeah. that was originally supposed to come out April 2018, was uh, shelved uh, for two and a half years. So I think that's, that's obviously a different sort of conversation than we would something like a Tenet or a Wonder Woman. I think there's still a lot of lessons to be learned, but we're seeing signs that uh, some folks um, aren't too keen to be the first to find out how this new normal works.
3: Paramount has been, as of this recording, the most recent studio to... Um, mostly Vacate 2020. Snake Eyes was scheduled for October, and now they're October next year. Clifford the Big Red Dog, obviously a family title, previously it was going to come out on november 13th 2020 and is now november 5th 2021 nothing particularly unexpected there they hadn't really ramped up marketing or, or really done much of any marketing for either of those titles
1: yeah the snake eyes trailer was originally planned for cinemacon obviously yeah. with cinemacon not happening that changed then it just seems like paramount kept holding the cards on that one and <laughs>
3: good good know. card reading uh,
1: mm, good mm-hmm. good pun good but, pun but that movie stars Henry Golding, you know, breakout star of uh, Crazy Rich Asians. And so there's every reason I think for Paramount to think that they've got a solid performer on their hands with snake eyes just based on his uh, casting alone. So uh, actually, to me, it suggests some confidence in the movie that they decided to hold it for a year rather than just dropping it uh, without much fanfare.
3: New, New Mutants sing it. (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, and then, and at this point, I mean there have been some some other shifts um, mostly relating to uh, their 2021 and 2022 lineups. but um, as of this point, the only uh, you know the only release that Paramount has on the calendar is their December release of Coming to America, the Coming to America sequel. It's two, the number two, saying those two titles out loud. You cannot distinguish between them. <laughs> um, right. But the Coming to America sequel <laughs> is Paramount's next release. So, um, I mean, at this point, they're able to really kind of focus on something that's not coming out until December in terms of, of marketing. It's it's a known property. It's it's known stars. Um, you know, Eddie Murphy, certainly the with, Thulamite with is my name. I mean... P- people still love Eddie Murphy for good reasons, and and it's not oh, it's not something like yeah. Snake Eyes or Clifford the Bid Red Dog where, you know, Henry Golding he's he's a big star, he's an up and coming star, but you still kind of have to sell people on. There's another GI right. Joe movie. Oh yeah, Henry Golding was that guy I liked in Crazy Rich Asians. Right, right. I feel like wow. Coming to America is is definitely an easier sell, and and maybe that's the thought is that Paramount can kind of put all their efforts on that horse and, and, and take other things that they might have to put more work on.
1: Coming to America is the same director as Dolomite is my name as well, Craig mm-hmm. Brewer. Mm-hmm. And uh, he and Eddie Murphy, obviously, you know, generated a pretty good working relationship on Dolomite. So it makes sense mm-hmm. that they've gone forward into this movie. And yeah. Yeah, yeah, a lot of the audience that Paramount needs to remember the original Coming to America is going to remember it without too much effort. Uh, not going to be a whole lot required.
2: Oh, I was a personal favorite on on my end. I'm a big fan. We should clarify. We should call this one to, "Coming to America," just so it's simpler for us. It rolls off. This is
3: car. a note to anyone at Paramount who's listening.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Exactly. So, okay, with those paramount uh, movements, uh, you know, we've got things happening at the box office domestically. We've talked about tenant overseas. We also had the return of the specialty market this year with the personal history of David Copperfield, which uh, Searchlight Pictures uh, put out. And uh, how did that go?
3: So yeah, the personal history of David Copperfield uh, was released on 1,360 screens for uh, a cumulative gross of uh, 475k over the weekend. It's first specialty title to come out uh, since the COVID shutdown. Uh, I spoke to director Armando Iannucci for our August issue. Uh, He's he's the director behind uh, Veep, is probably his most his most prominent title uh, to to U.S. audiences, Uh, and he told me that uh, uh, Searchlight told him that a lot of specialty uh, art house independent theaters were, were really looking forward. Uh, to having to having a film to again, specifically looking forward to that film, looking forward to a Searchlight release, um, and, you know, and and he was very measured when I asked him about, you know, is this ever a film that that would have gone to PBOD? Searchlight Pictures, as we know, has has been uh, really committed to the theatrical market. Um, just you know, speaking from his point of view of the director of the film, he said, you know, I want it to be able to come out theatrically. Um, in a way that is safe. I don't, I don't want people uh, to risk their lives to see this movie. Um, You know, at the same time, just speaking my own personal opinion here, you know, it's a very, very wonderfully, beautifully staged, colorful film. And and it's one that I personally am am very glad that I saw on the big screen before all this, all this went down. Um, You know, that is one, uh, that is one Russ that I wonder, you know, I'm more interested in the holds over the coming weeks for that one because it is a sort of film that kind of no one's rushing out on the first weekend. Oh my god, I have to see another Charles Dickens adaptation. No offense to Charles Dickens, but it is a word of we clearly have different (laughs) friends.
1: I think, too, as people understand, oh, this is from the person who made In the Loop and the person who made Veep, which is an amazing show, mm-hmm. that uh, as as that understanding starts to filter through, maybe some of the audience that thinks, oh, do I need to see a Charles Dickens movie might think, oh, wow, I, I do want to see a new movie from the person who made Veep. Mm-hmm.
3: And and once the word of mouth gets out that, like, oh, this movie is is really funny. It's it's a, a heartening movie. It's it's kind of a feel-good movie. It definitely doesn't have that sort of um fusty, musty aura that I think uh period dramas are are often somewhat unfairly labeled with. So um yeah that, that's one that the box office life of this movie I'm definitely interested in in seeing and I'm and I'm glad that it's available for people uh to see it in theaters.
2: It's interesting you bring up that that factor of word of mouth, because right now in this recovery effort, the word of mouth is going to be uh, two-pronged. One is, did you like the movie? And two is going to be, how did you feel in the movie theater? And that's something that we've said uh, time and time again uh, here on the podcast in the past, is that it's going to take Hearing experiences from people uh, that they trust, people in their social circles, to really reassure some of the folks that are concerned to go back. I think a, a lot of uh, businesses, a lot of cinemas have worked very hard to put in these policies in place. What your cousin or what your friend or, or what your partner might say about their trip to the cinema, I think that's really going to influence uh, an uptick uh, down, the, down the road when it comes to to that box office recovery. Real quick, we had the opportunity to speak with uh, Frank Rodriguez, the head of distribution over at Searchlight uh, on Sunday as we're reporting the the box office totals there. An interesting thing he told me, guys, was that, yes, they were completely committed uh, too theatrical. It's one of the reasons why as a specialty player, they didn't go into that PVOD space during the closures the way uh, other competitors like uh, A24 with First Cow or with a number of titles from Focus did. They really wanted to have a title there for the reopening. But they did have an unexpected uh, increase in location counts because according to uh, to Frank Rodriguez, a number of the majors, say the AMCs, the Cinemarks, the Regals that are already open, probably gave them a couple of more runs than they otherwise would have because the, the screen is available, especially right now before the tenant opening. So they did see that sort of uh, slightly wider push. They saw uh, great progress in, in markets that they don't traditionally associate. With specialty titles. So some of the the markets that did particularly well with this title include Dallas, Texas, uh, Orlando, Florida, uh, cities in Tennessee like uh, Knoxville and, and Nashville. And that's always good to see, right? When you have these sort of titles that uh, we usually associate with their platform releases in in the coasts, do well in parts of the country that they might not have uh, the, the release that, that we'd all hope for.
3: And, and it's better in, in the sense that the, you know, 25%, 50% capacity limitations that some of these theater ha- theaters have, um, you know, it's not going to come into play so much when it's a huge megaplex AMC, you know, you're getting everybody in there maybe who would have wanted to buy a ticket for a more specialty limited title, uh, whereas with a smaller theater, maybe you're going to have to turn people away. One of the upcoming titles that that Searchlight appears to be really excited about is Nomadland from director Chloe Zhao. She directed The Writer, which was uh, very well received on on the critic circuit and in the festival circuit a few years back. She's already uh, been tapped to direct uh, an upcoming MCU title. Uh, And her next one is, is Nomadland, which actually is getting a a bow on the festival circuit, even though you you might not be thinking the festival circuit's happening this year, but it's happening.
2: (laughs) Whether we'll be able to cover it is another question,
3: apparently. Mm -hmm. Well, it is is having a simultaneous premiere um, on September 11th at the uh, Venice International Film Festival and the Toronto International Film Festival, um, both of which are actually having... Physical film festivals. Um, Toronto is doing a mix between in person and and digital, and, and is definitely smaller than it's been in years past. I, I think they're only doing fifty titles. But, yeah, it's having having a simultaneous premiere at those two festivals with, uh, you know, Zhao kind of coming in virtually, uh, along with star and producer uh, Francis McDormand. And then the next day, Telluride, which is a a really big indicator and an important player in the awards season. It's not having an in-person edition, but it's having this special like Telluride from Los Angeles drive-in thing. Where they're able just specifically to screen this film in in drive ins in Los Angeles, hopefully, getting some of that. Essential buzz um, to to get butts and seats when the film comes out in theaters, uh, which it is scheduled to do in December. So it's it's weird to see that um, you know a, a repetition of the the very normal you know film. <laughs> it's the festival circuit, and then it has a theatrical release a few weeks a few months later. Um, but but Searchlight is is uh, is committed to that with with Nomadland, and and I'm really excited to to see the film and to see how that shakes out for them what is award season what does festival season <laughs> look like this year
1: right yeah it's weird and i guess there are a couple of prongs to consider there one of those prongs is not applicable for this movie because it's the interaction between festival season and uh pickups distribution pickups obviously searchlight already has nomadland so that movie doesn't need to be bought So you wonder about some of the movies that were uh, completed that, you know, did not get to debut at the Cannes Festival that didn't happen, that didn't get to debut at other festivals that didn't happen. Um, You know, there's a certain amount of uh, product, for lack of a better word, sitting on shelves without distribution yet. Um, And I wonder if this festival season will Uh, adjust uh, the future for any of those movies. And then obviously there's the question of festival season as it relates to awards uh, and awards as that relates to promotion of movies. There's a lot of money that's put into award season promotion, but we don't know what any of that stuff is going to look like yet. And I don't know, to me it seems kind of weird to have an award season when there hasn't been much of a year for distribution overall. Uh, And so I'm, you know, by the time we get to, let's say uh, these festivals happen, a couple of movies end up being breakouts. You know, how many people are going to be able to see those movies before the awards season really comes around? There are always complaints that people haven't been able to see the awards movies before uh, the awards really take place. This year, it seems like that might be more pointed criticism than ever.
3: Especially with getting, getting critics to see these films. I mean, I... You, you see studios kind of gradually figuring out the process of sending online screeners to press. And there's some, some bumps along the road uh, right. so far. Let me just, let me just say that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know. What are we best picture winner, bad boys for life. I, I don't, it seems like if, if anything, a much smaller award show, I mean, definitely in terms of, of the physical scope of it, obviously, but also in terms of how many films
1: can you really hey look? You know what? We're still getting Deneva Villeneuve's Dune at the end of December. And I'm far as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> I haven't seen the movie. It can sweep the Oscars. Let's go. Let's do an all Dune Oscars.
2: <laughs> I think that's probably the most uh anticipated film for this podcast. Certainly for me. Dune.
1: <laughs> um certainly for me. So I but it's a good question. I don't know how that how that works. And uh I think it's a question that a lot of people certainly on the critic side and on the distribution side wonder about. And to a certain degree that we've just kind of, somebody's just kind of got to brute force the issue and, you know, get the movies out there and, and see what happens.
3: Cause so on the one side you have, I mean, potentially you could have a full Oscars season of the films that have come out and, and you would finally get some, you know, awards, major awards Oscar appreciation for some of the smaller films that maybe flew under the radar
1: well, the, uh, the other question is, you know, um, Pixar's Soul comes out in November. Uh, I haven't seen the movie. I've seen as much of it as anyone else has, uh, possibly even less. But let's say if Soul is just terrific. Let's say Soul is one of the great Pixar movies. Pixar has been edging closer and closer towards that best picture category for some time. This seems like a year where maybe a movie like Soul has a shot at best picture that otherwise it doesn't have. You know, I, I don't know how that works.
2: I think that's, that's a really good point, because looking back at, at what this year has brought in terms of movies, it's something that we've touched upon in the past, but maybe it's worth discussing a little bit more in detail now. What movies have really broken through the cultural conversation in 2020 as a whole? Uh, of course, with the return of, uh, of of new releases, hopefully we'll have more titles to to have a conversation about. But really, what are the titles that your parents have heard about, or that your friends that aren't in the industry are talking about?
1: Well, I, let me start to answer that question. You know, in our news recap earlier, because it wasn't exactly box office news, we didn't talk about uh, the shocking death of actor Chadwick Bozeman, who passed on Friday after a four year battle with colon cancer, uh, a colon cancer that no one outside of his family and probably some of his close colleagues and friends knew that he had. And so that has caused uh, sort of a surge of appreciation for his work uh, and uh, grief over his passing uh, you know someone who thanks to his role as Black Panther meant a lot to a huge number of people you know who had never seen a, a superhero like Black Panther on the big screen before earlier this year he was in De five Bloods, which was the new Spike Lee movie which uh, was a Netflix release but that I think, Bozeman's passing has brought that movie back up into the conversation a little bit and I th- I feel like after everything is said and done that's maybe a movie that's going to stick around as a conversation piece and depending on where things go with eligibility it could also be one that ends up being a player come award season uh, you know in that Bozeman plays a, a, a character who is sort of this scene in flashbacks um, by the surviving uh, primary characters who had served with him in Vietnam and he He plays a character that now that we know that the Bozeman was suffering from a terminal cancer when he performed the role has even more resonance than it had in the original film. So that is certainly one answer for me. And I'm curious to see, you know, how that movie sticks around as people continue to talk Mm -hmm. about uh, Bozeman's work.
3: The only other one that I've really seen, you know, an extended conversation on, um, honestly, is is Hamilton dropping on Disney Plus? I mean, that was something that already had mm. a huge public consciousness uh, to it. People were already waiting for it, waiting, waiting to see it. And and I saw, you know, some discussion that happened um, specifically about the ending that that kind of went on for, for a little bit. Other than that, it's just kind of been something comes out and people talk about it for a few days and then it's just, I mean, time has no meaning this year anyways. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it's well, hard
2: to have that sticking power, re- right? The, o- I does, mean, well,
3: the only other does, one I'm seeing yeah. is, is a host, which is um, a film that, that it premiered on, on shutter, the horror streaming site. And that one was actually a horror film um, that was shot. Like it was shot on zoom. It's a, like the, the premise of the film is that the cast produced is, is
1: during in quarantine. quarantine.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think definitely that that hook helped it, um, you know, have some have some staying power and have some ability to cut through the noise. Uh, Certainly the fact that it's a good film helped. But I mean, speaking to what you said, Daniel, I don't know if that's really made much of an impact outside of horror, horror people.
2: In my little corner, I think. uh, Yeah, Hamilton, I think, has been really the one title. And I think when we look back on 2020 and things that went to VOD, Hamilton's going to be the one that hurt the most. Uh, we've, we've talked about it in the past, uh, losing Mulan was a big deal, I think for exhibition, but when we look at like box office grossing potential, of course, worldwide, I don't think it really has too much of, uh, no one cares about the
3: American founding fathers outside of America. What?
2: Especially if you wrap your way through it, I'm sorry, (laughs) even on a personal level, I think when my father visited us here in in New York one year, he asked me why there was a a musical about the Formula One race car driver Lewis Hamilton. I have to, you know, clarify for him that uh, no, this was a political figure in, in the United States. But, but I still think domestically that one had huge box office grossing potential. I do think more than Mulan did, uh, more than Troll's World Tour. So that's going to be the one that that when we look back, I think on this year, uh, it, it did create a splash. It did have. Uh, staying power in a national conversation, and very few other things have. I think the stay-at-home mode of viewing films is more conducive in terms of a conversation to that serial format that we're seeing with a lot of um, originals from Netflix and, and, and Hulu, for example. Obviously, Tiger King, I think, had a big part of the cultural conversation right at the beginning of uh, of COVID-19 closures here in the U.S and also the Last Dance documentary on, on ESPN about Michael Jordan. I think those two docu-series, just by their nature, had this conversation power, but I'm not sure if I would include them in the whole cinema category. I think it's a little no, they're bit not. of a stretch to have that.
1: What I would say as far as things that did open theatrically is um, you know, two movies that were I think better than anyone expected and which consequently have had some staying power and which I think would have had more power with a longer theatrical window are the aforementioned Bad Boys for Life and (laughs) uh, Universal's uh, The Invisible Man, which is really a terrific Mm. movie. Mm -hmm. Like, brutally straightforward, uh, but very effectively made, really entertaining, and actually scary. Uh, And, you know, that movie had some good life. And unfortunately, it hit just before COVID really locked everything down. And I think that uh, had... Uh, the Invisible Man had the opportunity to have a better theatrical run. It would probably have stuck around. Now, of course, if Universal wants to, you know, if they drop The Invisible Man back into theaters in October, I think there's every reason to think that that could perform again, uh, because now people know what it is, and and you know, if nothing else, that that's a movie that could do well as a rep circuit or even you know, uh, an October re-release uh, in years to mm. come
3: double feature that with Candyman.
1: Well, that's the thing. Candyman's the other movie that seems like it has the big opportunity to really be a cultural powerhouse once it arrives in October, assuming that it does. Uh, So, you know, I think we're all curious to see how that one turns out.
2: Yeah. I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities, as you guys mentioned, in in seeing what movies that had a curtailed theatrical run end up sneaking their way back to theaters, uh, especially with not that many new wide releases coming out in, in the coming weeks. Uh, we had expected a title like The Kingsman, for example, to come out in, in mid-September from Disney. That's off the schedule now. So uh, to get a better idea and a clearer picture of what we've got ahead of us, uh, not only this weekend with a release domestically of Tenet, but also in 2020 as a whole, uh, let's welcome in our dear colleague, Sean Robbins, Chief Analyst here at Box Office Pro to walk us through what we can expect from this weekend's tenant release and what's coming up after
0: hey Daniel thanks it's good to uh, be back good to talk some good news for a change
2: <laughs> and it is good news because it's it's hard to sort of uh, figure out what these numbers mean I mean we were chatting here earlier on on these international figures from opening weekend uh, what's your take on that 53.6 million uh, opening weekend overseas for tenant
0: yeah, I think at this point uh, we're kind of reinforcing this notion that let's look at let's look at these results in a few weeks, even a month from now, and kind of start to determine success on that. But uh, there's really no getting around the fact this this outperformed pretty much any projection ahead of release, so it's hard to see it as anything but positive. And you know, we're seeing several markets where it's being directly compared to the numbers of Dunkirk and Interstellar, and it not being very far behind those films in very uh, select cases performing very close to the average IMAX in particular has been a strong driver. So it's, you know, this is, this is really, uh, you couldn't have asked for much more. I don't think.
2: And it's interesting because we also have to factor in the good with the bad, right? So right. the bad is there's a pandemic. People, not everybody wants to come back. The good thing is it's it's easy to read too much into these numbers sometimes because there is an unparalleled pent up demand that I don't think we've ever seen in the market, especially looking at, at something, let's say domestically, like like New Mutants uh, opening to 7 million. Something that Russ had, had mentioned earlier on the podcast was, could we see a title like that? have a bigger week two or week three gross after an opening weekend. Do you foresee those scenarios happening in the domestic market?
0: I think it's, it's still a little hard to tell, but it's absolutely possible. And it will depend on the movie. I think with New Mutants, there were a lot of factors with that film, even before the pandemic. I mean, it had been delayed multiple times and it was naturally fan driven. And it kind of performed that way in its first couple of days domestically. But that's, that's when we talk about Tenet and I think some of the other films coming out over the next couple of months, they'll be in very different situations. And it really is it's going to be all about the, those, those main elements of they will have screens longer. They, the natural tendency of people to come back to theaters, even in markets that are open, uh, is going to be staggered. I mean, you're going to have people that want to play this more cautiously and even if, even if cases are down in their area, theaters are open for a couple of weeks and you know things are going well. It's natural for people that want to be cautious, and that's you know I think that's something that everybody can respect. There are a Mm. lot of people who want to go back now, and uh, we're kind of seeing that. And I think I think we will see that with tenant, but that's why any figures that we see are just not going to have any point of comparison, and we kind of have to take them on their own terms.
2: You know, we always take uh, studio reporting here with a grain of salt. I think in in the coming weeks, we're going to have to need a bucket of salt to basically, you know, cut through uh, what is the good news, what is the bad news. But with that in mind, uh, Sean, what can we expect from this weekend's domestic opening of Tenet? What scenarios are in your mind?
0: Right. Well, you know, I think we can talk about a lot of different scenarios. I think the most likely right now, is kind of looking at this from the perspective of we have these sneak previews for three days leading into a Thursday nationwide release that will still be missing several major markets. So you really could not have a more non-traditional opening for a major film in the United States, especially going into Labor Day weekend. So you essentially have this four-day week. You essentially have an eight-day opening for the film. But I think it's fair to look, if you want to break it down to that specific Friday to Sunday, traditional weekends. Just look at it normally. Even Friday through Monday, there are going to be a lot of different patterns going on here. But with Nolan's following and the pre-sales we're seeing, I I think it's fair to say that you know we could see an overall first week maybe hit thirty-five to forty million, possibly a little higher, uh, especially with overseas results being what they are and uh, the fact that we're we're hearing some good news out of uh, several other states that are hoping to try and get back up and running in time for this weekend. So, but again, this is, this is all about the, the long term play. And even if it can hit that number, the higher it goes, you know, maybe that's, that's going to translate to not, I wouldn't, I would hesitate to call it being more front loaded, but the, the higher it does open, maybe the more normal it can play, but it, by nature, as a Nolan film, his films tend to play for a long time anyway, and uh, on average, you know, I think close to three months, uh, if not longer, is is probably the minimum we could expect for this to be playing in some major theaters. So, regardless of what we see happen this weekend, I don't think the whole story is going to be told for weeks, if not a month or two to come.
2: Of course, yeah. Now, and anecdotally, you know, speaking with friends that are outside the industry, uh, you know, reassuring them on what the industry is doing to to make this as low risk as possible, a lot of folks I know are saying, hey, I can't wait to see it at a Tuesday morning sometime in early October. <laughs> uh, and I think that's going to be a, a, the case for for a number of, uh, of viewers. So I think I, I agree with it's going to be uh, a number of weeks until we really have uh, a good perspective of what that theatrical run looks like. Talking about theatrical runs, um, obviously, there's there's a lot to look at for the rest of the year. There's been some calendar changes with Paramount and Disney clearing up some dates in 2020. What's it looking like right now on the schedule for the remainder of the year? So
0: at this point,
2: you know, I think it's natural to
0: be spooked by any release delay because we're so we're, we're triggered by it at this point after months of it and just kind of this constant concern about what that means for exhibition. But I think the I think the perspective here, especially with Paramount's uh, delays, has been the fact that starting with, well, actually, we'll start with Disney, with with moving the Kingsman. It was really in no man's land. Uh, it, it was opening two weeks after Tenet and two weeks before Wonder Woman, which yeah. leaves it really not much space to breathe. And given what we generally know about Warner Brothers' uh, contractual agreements for keeping tenant on the biggest and best screens. Even if Kingsman had opened, it would probably be playing in these smaller auditoriums where it's even harder to social distance and you're not getting the greatest image and sound quality. So it makes a lot of sense for them to delay it into February from that perspective. And looking at Paramount, I think there was always a question about Clifford and Snake Eyes because they uh, most likely haven't even finished production so it, granted, while there is this concern about having too many films on the market and just playing it safe, I think there's also that, that practical thing to keep in mind of if these films are even ready. And there are still one or two films that are on the slate for later in the year that you can ask that question about. Yeah. Uh, but I think those in particular, especially for, for an animated title like Clifford, it, it was just kind of seem, seeming obvious that uh, they wouldn't want to keep that on the calendar, and even if it were finished it would, it would have been going up against a Pixar movie and the first animated movie in over half a year. So it's just, you know, a risk not worth taking.
2: Yeah, it looked like a very difficult corridor and competitive corridor for, for multiple releases to, to share the spotlight. Sean, thanks so much for joining us. And for our listeners at home, you can read our final box office forecast for that domestic opening weekend of Tenet at boxofficepro.com.
1: Well, thanks, Sean, for that. Uh, Excited to see how this weekend works out. And thanks to Daniel and Rebecca for all of their insights and contributions. Once again, uh, we will see you next Thursday on our new schedule. Uh, Please join us. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Caitlin Kehoe and recordeditpodcast.com. This episode was written by Daniel Luria and Rebecca Polly, and narrated by Daniel, Rebecca, Sean Robbins, and me, Russ Fisher. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next week.